Good morning, Grace Hill. How is everyone? Good. It's good to see all of you this morning. It's uh, always good to come back. I, I was not here last week because John McGowan from Restoration City Church was preaching here, and I was preaching over at his church in Crystal City, which is always a joy, but it's always good to, to be back with all of you. And um, I'm real excited about this morning because we're going to be jumping into a new series here at Grace Hill Church over the next several weeks up until Easter. And um, this is just a series that we really feel the Lord has led us into as a church uh, that we need to be uh, in together. And so this morning we're gonna be in Matthew chapter four. So if you have a Bible, please open that up uh, to Matthew four and we'll read from Matthew four in just a, a few minutes together. And if you have a Bible app, that's completely fine. You can use that. And we'll also have the uh, verses on the screen behind me. And we'll read that in just a few minutes. But you know, the Bible says that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. If you remember a parable that Jesus said, Jesus gives us this fictional story, that's what a parable is, to, to give us a point and teach us a point. And he told this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector who went to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee is a Jewish leader. He goes and he prays and he prays, Lord, I'm just, I'm so thankful for how righteous I am. I'm so thankful that I live this good life. I'm thankful that I'm not like that tax collector over there. Now, tax collectors were known for being frauds and cheats and they stole money from the poor and so the tax collector though, he's in the temple praying and he's convicted over his sin. And so he starts beating his chest and he's saying, God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And he, he knows what he's done against God and he's asking God for mercy and he's repenting right there in the temple before God. And, and so what, what God is saying is there's more joy in heaven over this tax collector repenting than 99 of these Pharisees. How easy is it to be a church to, to be a place where Christians can come and, and worship God and be encouraged in their faith and, and learn from the scriptures and be in community with one another, all things that are good, all things that we are commanded to do and we will keep doing. But how easy is it to be all about the needs of the 99 and yet never witness the moment where the one that tax collector repents and all of heaven celebrates. The vision of Grace Hill Church is to be a church where all people can find joy in Jesus. I want us to be a church where Christians can gather, thrive, and, and grow in their faith and their joy in Jesus. I want that for every one of you who are a follower of Jesus. But there is intoxicating joy that I don't think we experience often. And, and that is the joy of celebrating along with all of heaven when we witness the one surrender their lives to Christ and find forgiveness and freedom 
and taste joy for the first time. That's a contagious type of joy. It's, it's one of those kinds of joys that when you experience it, you just want more of it. And I want to be a church where we celebrate along with heaven regularly. But I believe we have something working against us when it comes to being a church where that happens. And I know this because I believe this is true of me. This is something, what I want to talk about today, is something that I need to confess, that I need to repent of in my life. But I believe that the church in America, I believe this to be true of our church, I believe this to be true of my life, has gotten really good at putting on camouflage and blending into the world. Where maybe we don't live exactly like the world, but we look enough like the world that no one really notices. We're different. We belong to the kingdom of God. We have the true message of salvation. God has said, you are my ambassadors, and I have sent you into this world to proclaim a message that is reconciliation with God through Christ. But many never know it about us because we're camouflaged. We, we don't want to stick out. The, the camouflage soothes our fear of rejection and prevents us from sticking out in the world. And it's gotten to the point that the idea of sharing the gospel in our cultural context, the idea of actually sharing the message of the gospel with someone has become a very fearful task. And sometimes we soothe those fears by saying, hey, I want my life to preach the gospel and not necessarily my mouth. But the problem with that is the gospel is a message with words that God has said, I need you to proclaim with your mouth. And so I fear that seeing our neighborhoods, like living a lifestyle, seeing our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our friend groups, our classrooms, all of that, seeing those as a mission field has become radical. You know, taking off the camouflage has almost become taboo. We believe if the world thinks we're weird, they won't listen to us. Which is why now in America, we have statistics that say it takes 85 church members to see just one person converted to Christ. 85 to one. Which is why we have thousands of churches closing their doors every year. And so this morning, we're, we're gonna start a sermon series called Joy Over One. All of heaven rejoices over the repentance of one sinner, and I don't want us as a church to be content with missing out on that celebration. And so this morning, we're gonna begin our series by studying Matthew 4, verses 18 to 23, if you have your Bibles open. And here's what I want us to do with this passage. I, I want us to assess where our hearts are with this. I think we need a heart assessment. And my hope for this morning and for this week as we take time to examine our hearts is that God would reveal to us how closely we cling to the camouflage and how it's robbing us 
of incredible joy. And so, Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 23. Let's jump in, see what it has to say for, with us this morning. It says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, that's Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them, same thing, follow me. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This is a really simple account of Jesus calling his disciples to follow him. And I think because of how simple it is, we can miss how profound what Jesus is saying here. Because here, here's what I want us to notice in the text and I think we need to wrestle with this morning is, is Jesus very simply makes following him inseparable from the work of getting others to follow him. In his first words to the disciples, in his first call upon them to follow him, he, he makes that Inseparable, in, inherent to being a disciple of Jesus Christ is multiplication. That is, as you grow as a disciple of Christ, you will multiply yourself into other disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus calls on his disciples to follow him, to learn from him, to live life with him, and then he also calls upon them to do the work of telling others about him. And so here's where I think we need the heart assessment this morning. Are we content with only following Jesus halfway? Are we comfortable with following Jesus when it comes to what happens inside our homes, when maybe it comes to the values that we carry or our engagement with the church, but, but when it comes to the other half, where we are actively involved in making new disciples of Jesus, are we content to sit that part out and let other people deal with that? And so I'd like to, to study our passage a little more deeply with you this morning um, and I'm going to do that by having all of us ask five diagnostic questions. That's what we're going to do. We're going to ask five questions of ourselves from this text. And this will help us kind of take an assessment of our heart in this. And not only do I want you to consider these questions this morning, I actually want you to consider them all week. And so uh, when you leave here today, we're going to be handing out a five-day heart assessment journal which will take these five questions and, and help you wrestle through them uh, through the rest of this week. So I'll, I'll tell you more about that later. But let's work through these five questions so we can assess our hearts. So here's, here's question number one. Question number one. How central is following Jesus in my life? How central 
is following Jesus in my life. When we look at our text this morning, it is clear that a shift takes place in the lives of these disciples when they start following Jesus, right? There's this imagery of them dropping their nets, leaving their father behind, and following Jesus. That communicates to us that a shift has occurred where following Jesus is now the central thing in their life. And we know from later texts in the Gospels that these guys didn't completely walk away from their jobs. They didn't completely walk away from their family members. But what we do know from later texts is, is following Jesus has now become the hub of their life. It's now become the central part of their life. So if you were to imagine your life like a wheel, like a wheel, Right? The hub of that wheel represents your central motivations, the filter through which you make all of your decisions. And the spokes in that wheel represent all the other areas of your life. Right? So, so maybe your life, or I think many people's lives, they, they might look like this. I think I have, oh, here we go. Where you see in the hub of this wheel it is what centrally motivates you. So for many people, their careers are in the hub, that is central to their life. They do something they love or they do something they're passionate about and so they enjoy it, they find their worth in it and so that becomes central in their life. And the spokes of the wheel represent everything else in your life. Your relationships, your friends, your family, how you spend your time, your leisure, or how you spend your weekends, where you decide to live, how you spend your money, even your faith following Jesus, because when your life is centered on something, the demands that it creates make everything else in your life subservient to it. So, so in here, the, the career is of central importance, and so the career takes precedent over everything else. And so this is something I think we need to wrestle with. So if I can lovingly press into us, I think this might be a good snapshot of every one of our lives. Go to the next wheel, if you could, where just fill in what you would in the center, whatever central, you know, maybe it's comfort and security, maybe it's being liked and accepted by the world, but, but whatever it is, Following Jesus is a, is a spoke on the wheel, meaning it's really important to us. We devote time to it, but it's subservient to what is truly central in our life. I think many of us would say, yes, yes, following Jesus, that's, that's the center of my life, but does following Jesus take precedent over everything in our lives? That's a hard question to wrestle with, I think, for all of us. This is a hard question for me to wrestle, guys. I'm a pastor, and I'm wrestling with this. And so I ask this question if, if following Jesus is truly central in our lives, because I believe the reason why we struggle with half of what it means to follow Jesus, making new disciples of Jesus, is because to go all in in that would impact every single area of our life. It would become something where everything in our life would be affected by what is now centrally important to us. And so I think Matthew 4 gives us a reality like, like this, 
where we're following Jesus for these disciples has now become central and, and everything else is now subservient to it. it. It impacts everything. How we spend our money, how we spend our time, our relationships with our family, our friends, our coworkers, right? Those relationships, we're now seeing them through a new filter. Or our travel schedules, or the role our church plays in our life, or whatever it is, because it's easy to say we follow Jesus, but it not be completely central in our life. Because in our cultural context, that's what's normal. So I just want us to wrestle with this question take a heart assessment. How central is following Jesus? What area of my life am I not willing to give Jesus control? And I think our second diagnostic question might help us answer that question. Here's, here's question two. Press in a little more. Do I accept that following Jesus will make me a minority in this world? Do I accept that following Jesus will make me a minority in this world? So what do you think Jesus meant when he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? Uh, in her commentary on Matthew, Suzanne Dietrich put it this way. She said, it is no longer a question of taking fish from the lake, but of drawing men up out of the abyss of sin and death, catching them in the great net of God. Jesus was saying that we, those who make following Jesus central in our lives, would, would be the ones through which he would intercept people who were living opposed to God. Right, if the majority of the people in the world are living opposed to God, and God has said he is going to use those who follow Jesus to intercept those people, then you better believe that we will be a minority in the world. And we're going to stick out. If you're white, most of us in here are, Anglo. You are part of what we call majority culture in America. Most people here look like you. And our society was built on a culture you're probably most comfortable with. So you don't stick out as much. But, but if you're a person of color or an immigrant in this country, you are a minority. Most people in this country don't look like you. And, and our society was built on a culture that either is not part of your heritage or you didn't grow up with. And so you know how it feels to stick out. You know how it feels to be in a room where most people don't look like you, to feel different than the people around you. Brothers and sisters, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Most people are not like us. We do not belong in this world, but we are ambassadors of Christ sent by God with a message to proclaim. The culture that we live in was not built upon the kingdom of God, so we are different. And if following Jesus is central in our life, if we take off the camouflage, we're going to look different, live different. And one of the things we need to begin to get comfortable with in our post-Christian culture here in America is not blending in anymore. 
not holding our cards close to our chest, but embracing the fact that following Jesus means we will now stand out as a minority in the world. And some people will reject us for that. This is one of the many, many areas where us majority culture folks can learn a whole lot from our minority brothers and sisters. How do we live faithfully and boldly when the world looks down on us from being different? They know more about that than we do. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it had, has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Notice there in John 15 that Jesus says, I chose you out of the world. Guys, the fact that we're followers of Christ, citizens of the kingdom of God, it doesn't make us better than the world. It means we're redeemed, reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus, recipients of the grace and mercy of God with a message to proclaim, and we've been sent in the world to proclaim it. It doesn't mean we're better. But we need to ask, do I accept the fact that following Jesus will mean I will stick out in the world and no longer blend in? Is acceptance by the world what is actually listed in the hub of the wheel? I'm open to following Jesus, but only halfway, so as long as it doesn't affect what is actually central. Question number three. Do I believe my neighbor needs the gospel and God has chosen me to deliver it? Do I believe my neighbor needs the gospel and God has chosen me to deliver it? And Jesus defines that word neighbor really broadly, not just those in your neighborhood or anyone who lives close to your life, but really anyone in your life, your coworkers, your friends, your family, your classmates, or anyone we encounter is our neighbor. And in verse 23 of our text, we see that immediately after Jesus calls these men to follow him, Jesus goes out to the town and he begins to proclaim the gospel. He is modeling for them exactly what he means when it comes to following him and being fishers of men, using our mouths to proclaim the gospel, to deliver the message. And we need to assess our hearts when it comes to if we believe our neighbor really needs the gospel or not. Do I believe that if my neighbor does not hear and respond to the gospel, they will face the judgment of God without the blood of Jesus covering their unrighteousness? Do I believe that my neighbor is made in the image of God. And there is unbelievable joy for them if they were to meet and be reconciled to their creator. God has placed one of his fishers of men in your workplace. He's placed one in your neighborhood. He has placed one in your friend group. He's placed one in your family. God has chosen you to be the one that will carry his message to these people. And I know that sounds really intimidating. We often don't feel qualified or knowledgeable enough or feel like I can answer everyone's questions to be able to speak on the behalf of God. It's intimidating. 
or we often feel like hypocrites because we don't live perfect lives. But when Jesus chose his disciples in Matthew 4, he did not pick the brightest. He did not pick the most morally pure. He did not pick the religious elite. He picked normal people who are willing to drop everything and make following Jesus central. God has chosen you to carry the gospel to your neighbor. All he asks of you is faithfulness. But do you believe your neighbor needs it? Question number four. What will be difficult for me to give up to follow Jesus? I don't think I changed that on our screen, but I changed it in my notes. What will be difficult for me to give up in order to follow Jesus? The Bible has always been clear that that following Jesus comes with a cost. There's a lot of preachers out there who would not admit that. The Bible is very clear. Following Jesus comes with a cost. That, That to really follow Jesus, you gotta pick up your cross too. So here in Matthew 4, we see these disciples drop everything to follow Jesus. And it's possible that that many of us have developed a view of following Jesus that is something that can be done alongside of everything else in our life. It can be just a spoke in the wheel. It doesn't have to touch every area of my life. We've become really good at compartmentalizing our life and allowing our faith to influence and touch certain spheres, but, but not everything, But look at what Jesus says in in Luke chapter nine, verses 57 to 62. He says this. As they were going along the road, his disciples, someone said to him, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus isn't saying that you're not allowed to have anything else be important to you in your life. What he is saying is that there is nothing in our lives that takes precedent over following Jesus. But when it comes to following Jesus, there's no but, but, but first. There's nothing more important. There's nothing that it can't touch. Everything in our life gets run through this filter of I am an ambassador of Christ. Nothing's off the table. And so the question is this, what in our lives do we say off limits? What part of our lives do we tell God he cannot have lordship over? What are we not willing to give up? And this all leads to question number five. Our last question for the morning, and that's this. Do I believe there is abundant joy in going all in? 
do I believe there is abundant joy in just going all in, just jumping in? Guys, there's a cost to following Jesus, and every single one of us needs to assess our hearts and go before the Lord in repentance. And, and, and here's the deal. I need to be first in line because I've put on the camouflage. There are things that I have not been willing to give up. I sometimes fear being the guy that sticks out. And guys, I'm a pastor. I have used being bold in this pulpit as my excuse for not being bold in my neighborhood. But I'll tell you this. There is a cost to following Jesus in this world, but there is abundant joy. You are a beloved creation of God and you bear his image. God has built your soul to be a part of something that is bigger than yourself. God has built your soul to reflect and proclaim his glory. That's where your joy is found and will run over. When you join in with that celebration of heaven over the one sinner who repents, your soul craves that whether you know it or not. And in our sin, we reject God. We live for ourselves. We, we live for our own comfort. We live for our own reputation. But God has redeemed us from all of that. We can go before the Lord in repentance and he is going to accept our repentance. He is going to forgive us of our sin because of what Christ has done, because of what he's done on the cross. And he's gonna open our eyes to what our true purpose is, where our joy is truly found. And so here's the question. Can any one of us in this room who follow Jesus, who know him, who have tasted his grace and have tasted true joy, can any one of us say it's not worth the costs? Paul said it this way in Philippians 3. He said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Brothers and sisters, we hold so many things closely to our chest and not allow it to be touched by Jesus, our reputation, our comfort, being normal, and in comparison to the true joy of just going all in and allowing Jesus to be central, in comparison, those things are rubbish. You will not regret going all in. For many of us, it's the last thing we're holding back. It's the one thing we're too afraid to give to Jesus and we wonder why our Christian life is not more joyful. And so as we spend time in this series, we're gonna, we're gonna dwell here for a bit. As we spend time in this series, we're gonna be talking about what it means to go all in. What it means to follow Jesus and for all of us to, to play a part in making new disciples. But for this morning and then the rest of this week, what I want us to do is just gain some self-awareness. 
to assess our hearts with this. And so as I mentioned, uh, as y'all leave this morning, we're gonna be distributing this five-day heart assessment journal. They'll be handing it out on your way out of the service. And what this is, is just gonna give you space to wrestle with these five questions that we talked about this morning. And so I, I, I really encourage you, take time to do this. Build, build the time to do this. Pray through it. Wrestle through it. And if you're married, I encourage you, do this together. Be honest with one another. Draw each other out uh, in this. But, but work through this. Let's assess our hearts together. And, and so, yes, I, I'm asking you, uh, as a church, to complete this journal before you come back. I know you're not used to getting homework at church before you come back, but, but do what you can. You don't have to bring it back, but work through it this week. Because Grace Hill, I long for us to have regular celebrations here along with all of heaven as we see people come to Christ. I long for that. And so I, I'm gonna pray that God would speak to all of us this week as we assess our hearts, as we examine ourselves, that he would speak to us, that, that he would reveal things to us, but that he would fill us with confidence that there is abundant joy in going all in. And so I'm gonna pray now that he would lead us in that and that he would lead us to be a church where all people can find joy in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as I mentioned, I do confess before you, before the church, that Lord, every single one of these diagnostic questions that we talked about this morning were written because Lord, these are questions that I'm wrestling with, that you were convicting me of this week as I was preparing for this morning. And so, Lord, I pray for my own heart and I pray for the heart of our church, Lord, that you would lead us to being faithful followers of Jesus who look to all that the world is offering us and we would say all of that is rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ, to following Christ, to, to being exactly who God called us to be, and to go after people who do not know Christ, Lord. Lord, help us to love our neighbors so much so that we're willing to risk being the odd one, being the abnormal one. We're, be, we're willing to risk going there and sharing our faith with people because Lord, we want our neighbor to know you and to find redemption and reconciliation with you and true joy. So Lord, I pray this week as we meditate on this, as we think upon this, that Holy Spirit, I pray you would bring conviction. But Lord, not a conviction that crushes us with guilt, but a conviction that reminds us of the sweetness of the gospel that we have experienced, the goodness of your grace that would then drive us to wanna see more people be able 
to experience your grace, Lord. We pray you would do that in our church. We love you, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.